Attention, attention please, stand by for another episode of When Humanists Attack. Welcome to another episode of When Humanists Attack. I am your host today, Vincent Downing, and I have the very distinct honor and pleasure of introducing and interviewing our very own resident Jewish Taoist pagan, Roger Kimmel Smith, who was one of the masterminds or ringleaders of a temple of the apotheosis, which was, as you may or may not know, the precursor to when humanists attack, as a friend of mine said to me the other day when I was explaining this project to them, he said, oh, so you're picking up from where you left off back in the late 90s. And I said, yes, well, yes, and hopefully have learned a thing or two. So that, as well as what we may have learned in the intervening time, is what I'm going to be talking to Mr. Smith about today. Welcome to the show, uh, Roger. It's good to be talking to you again. And I'd like to first get a quick recap on what it is you're up to these days. A pleasure to be with you, Vincent. In 2020, I am living uh, in upstate New York, rural outskirts of Ithaca and a hamlet called Brooktondale. Uh, I have been uh, making a living as a freelance educational uh, wordsmith, writer and editor for a decade or more, uh, writing about things ranging from business to politics, current events, uh, jazz, history of show business and black history. I host a radio program on a local community station out of Ithaca and Watkins Glen, New York, called Crazy Words, Crazy Tune, that airs weekly and focuses on music and popular culture of the 1920s and 1930s, a passion of mine. In recent days, I've been uh, working part-time at a job that was uh, declared essential once uh, COVID-19 struck which is stocking groceries at the uh, Green Star Food Co-op in Ithaca, New York. Well, it sounds like you're still busy. Some of my current pursuits. Uh, Let's go back to uh, the fall of 1996, when a temple of the apotheosis attempted probably its most ambitious program, a, a weekly gathering in the East Village, which we called the Congress of Causation. We were youthful 'er ne'er-do-wells or do-gooders or both uh, trying to make something happen. I had a little FCC thought, should I or should I not, you know, tell the truth. What we were trying to make happen was shit. We were making shit happen. We didn't quite know what it it would be, uh, what the Congress of Causation turned out to cause in my life around 1998 was a relationship, (laughs) essentially, with the woman who uh, became my wife, uh, became the mother of my child, and then a decade or more later became my ex-wife. And perhaps a few other things I daren't say. When you start meddling, I remember one one Vincent Downing (laughs) saying around that time, we're trying to take the bold step from dabbling 
to meddling. <laughs> <laughs> and when you do that, my good man, you, know, you do not know what uh, you know will result. <laughs> what the result will be. So yeah, um, you know that new relationship, which was immensely exciting to me at its outset, which seemed really in my heart of hearts to be a reward for the good work that I had done both on myself and in the community with you guys. The reward was this relationship, which blossomed into marriage, uh, although it did as a cost of preserving the relationship as became more and more clear later on, but should have been clear from the beginning. Uh, it cost me my working relationship with you guys. <laughs> oh, because uh, she tended not to like almost anyone. It was so strange that she liked me. That's when I started to pull away. Okay. So I had already sort of concluded my pulling away by '98 when we called, when we called a Toda day. Officially, but, yeah. But I was still then, well, living in New York and working at the UN and wanting right. to teach. I had started taking education credits, and I ended up getting a high school teaching job uh, in 2000, uh, but not oh. completing the year because I I despised. <laughs> many elements of teaching high school okay. did several years of college teaching part-time and full-time all as uh, adjunct um, and during that phase of my stabs at professional careers my ex and I moved up to Ithaca and also during that time had hmm. a child Magda's now 18 so that's another of my uh, my accomplishments greatest, my greatest accomplishments okay. I suppose. Now, speaking of which, let's go back to where we were, what we were doing, and maybe some of the things we learned back then. You were saying earlier that you didn't think that we uh, accomplished a great deal. I, I would, I'd have to disagree. I'd have to say that in, in terms of our intentions, we really, in some ways, we really missed the mark incredibly. But in terms of other things, in terms of like proving, learning how not to do certain things, I think we, we got a great deal done. Well, what was your understanding of, of what we were doing? Uh, may, maybe start uh, as close to the beginning as you think relates to what we're doing right now. When I returned to my hometown of Brooklyn, in 1993, from a few sort of misspent youth years in San Francisco, and swiftly through the workings of fate, found my way to living with Robin and Andrea in Park Slope, uh, and through uh, Robin meeting you and Chris. Very soon after that, I was uh, invited by you to a, a gathering slash happening slash party slash celebration of the autumn equinox of that year. A very fun time was had, and uh, I discovered that, you know, the two of you and some of your compatriots had a footing in the, the pagan ceremonial rites and some of the sort of, you know, cultural precepts surrounding that. You knew how to stage a ceremony with sufficient pomp and a sense that there, you know, that energy was a currency that we could gather, we could, you know, cast a, uh, a magic circle, at least do the business of saying hello and thank you 
to some elementals that <laughs> were out in the beyond. <laughs> All this was somewhat impressive to me. I didn't have experience with it, but by the end of not that night, but uh, but more events that were the right. the eight ceremonies of uh, the year, the two solstices, the two equinoxes, uh, the four points in between. I learned this to be a pagan cycle of holidays, which really made sense to me. And the the group, it seems, maybe after that autumn equinox or maybe after the, the Halloween that followed it or Samhain? Samhain. I never, I never learned how to pronounce I, uh, the names of these holidays yeah. really correctly. But uh, at some point during that first, you know, half year, we, I think really you and Chris, uh, maybe me and Robin were drawn in, committed to continuing the year and staging events in NYC for all eight of those spokes on the wheel. For years, I thought this was our main pragmatic accomplishment is that we, we actually did follow through with that, not just for one year, but for four whole years of homegrown pagan-esque celebrations slash ceremonies in the proper balance of reverence and irreverence actually is accomplishing a lot. And drawing in a, f a, a few dozen people, which sometimes seemed like, you know, it was on the upper end of a few dozen, who, uh, who came to the events and were uh, parts of a network or a constituency. There was a churchy type word we were, we were tempted to call it. Congregation? Yeah. <laughs> and we kept picking up more people mm -hmm. all the time. We were, we were good at that. Uh, and I, I say I, that because recently I've not been good at that. So I recognize the accomplishment now that I was taking for granted. Out of the out of the air, out of the, the zeitgeist of New York City in the mid 90s, we were, you know, drawing a recognition of that need, uh, a need for, some, you know, networking within the larger urban space or community building within it, subcultural uh, as it may be. You know, we were all proud weirdos. Counterculturalists, actually, in, in a way. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, and I, I never really got immersed in the in the magic with a K kind of business. I had sympathy for friends who sometimes referred derisively to the Chris and Vincent religion. But I knew that you and we were onto something. I think that the way you're articulating it now uh, has more maturity to it. Our biggest single weakness was trying to build a community without depending on the us versus them dynamic. And that was, <laughs> that was actually one of our very clearly articulated goals right from the start. Uh, we did not want to have, you know, one of these situations where we are the good people and all those other people around us are the bad people. I guess that's right. The pagans, the historical record shows that we're more like the Jews, comfortable being on the receiving end of persecution <laughs> than needing it out. <laughs> Dallas, Dallas, perhaps the same. Uh, Still more gently. We managed to get some fairly disparate types of people to get along very well. An occupational hazard of the, the countercultural 
magical weirdo basket of uh, individuals is they're so proud of their individualism that they may not even notice that they're partaking in mighty helpings of the same kind of individualism, which is actually one of the main things harming us as a national society, as a, as a set of Americans. We're harmed by our individualism uh, and don't oh my. Okay. naturally form communities that make uh. a concrete, pragmatic difference in one another's lives, that help people grow, help people build uh, a base under their hierarchy of needs so that they can aim higher in what they uh, intend to and commit to achieving while alive. Other societies do that better than we do. Mutual aid and solidarity, something that I think uh, 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 people in our general subculture are coming back to during this time because we overall have been kicked down the hierarchy of needs, so the needs are more, more intense, so we're responding to them as best we can. We also had ideas about participating in spiritual life through this project, and not yes. in an us-and-them way, but yes. not in the usual Western way. Oh, or us the usual Eastern way, then, you know, if we're doing without an us versus them, I mean, that seems to be fairly baked into just about all of these communities, regardless of where they originate. That's one of the things that <laughs> leaders and people count on. I, under certain circumstances, I don't even consider it a bad thing. Consider how you would need an opposing team. Think about in sports. You need uh, teams to be in opposition to your team so that you'll be better at your sport. That's right. What were they, the Washington, you know, the, the ones the Harlem Globetrotters always knocked off? They certainly served the whole in, in, in their function. So we, I, I think we, we actually succeeded in that. I think we, I think we succeeded in being entertaining. We certainly at the Congress of Causation, we had a lot of really talented and driven to communicate. I can't, you know, there were so many different people trying to do so many different things. You had people doing magical rituals. You had people showing their art. You had people doing bits of Shakespeare. You, you kind of never really knew what was going to happen when people stepped up to that microphone. Right. And, and sometimes we, it flopped as, as, you know, yeah, as any good, yeah, uh, sure. as any good comedy stage will witness its share of flops, but offering the, the stage, you know, the chutzpah that I guess it took for us as a group to propose and then realize the, the whole uh, idea of it. It seemed on one level like a next step that made sense. The energy that we had drawn together in these eight gatherings a year was delicious enough that we wanted more of it, which is how I thought of it. <laughs> the, the service that we saw it providing was one we thought we could harness and take to another level. So it made sense to do a weekly program. But it essentially, like uh, your idea here for a program, uh, it, it, it has many of the same qualities, many of the same requirements as entertainment programming. As I suppose churches and synagogues have to 
have to fill a certain amount of time per week as well, you know, with their content. And be entertaining and have yeah. a good feed afterwards and have a place where you can leave the kids so the parents get a little bit of uh, resting time. Uh, I actually learned a lot about all of that at the Society of Ethical Culture, which has a lot of very practical matters that have to be attended to along with teaching people about ethics and teaching children how to be ethical members of the, our species rather than the, the cute little savages that they otherwise are. We were a bunch of young folks. There were no kids at the time. We were all at least yeah, imagine if, well- Imagine if somebody had brought a kid to one of those Congresses. <laughs> happened a couple of times it was mm. i remember it once being the once being not that disruptive but it was disruptive because we really did not have you know there's a bunch of 20 somethings basically we really didn't have any there wasn't any child care space uh the way i don't there think is. i had ever held a baby until i had one oh a yeah possibly. okay the, the one my sister had three months before before my uh my ex had Magda. Well, that was a good thing to learn how to do in your, in your <laughs> some practical value humanification there. <laughs> Given that it was pretty cerebral, much of it, and it was pretty cerebral. Like, do you remember the sleepover weekend where we spent, it, we did like a, the retreat and we all slept in the temple in the basement? Uh, at my house and we meditated on what we wanted the group to be. Then I remembered and, that, you know, that, that was the one and only time really that I, uh, that I passed up an, an opportunity to go sleep with another person in the same bed, <laughs> an opportunity I had not had for years. <laughs> oh, it's part of why, uh, you know, I ended up pulling away, but, uh, but yes, I do remember that weekend. I don't remember there being a set, thinker that we all had to agree on, for example. We were trying to do what we were doing without that. Uh, we certainly weren't asking everybody to be a pagan. Um, we wanted people to do the pagan rituals, but as you pointed right, out- The overriding concept was interfaith. Humanism without the name. When, when I encountered yeah. humanism as a philosophy some years afterwards, I was like, oh, well, you know, that's the, what we were trying to do with the uh, with a tota, that, that that's what you that's what we woulda shoulda coulda called it if if I'd have even really known that it was out there to be had, and mm. I didn't find that it was a, a problem for the interfaith concept that we were using the pagan rituals as the the operating framework. Everybody brought all kinds of different things into the pagan rituals and added them and nobody, nobody was saying, well, you know, the goddess wouldn't like that or anything like that. Uh, so I think that worked out. How did well, you put like it I earlier? Said, there had to be a proper balance of reverence, reverence and irreverence. And irreverence, or, yes. or I would run screaming, as I have from some pagan events I've gone to in other settings, that it's very easy for that stuff to, uh, to gross me out. You know, if it takes itself too seriously, humor is one of the fundamental philosophies. The tactics that we felt were most likely to work for us and perhaps have most impact were like those of street theater. 
a humorous, irreverent take that also sort of indirectly spoke mm. of solidarity and of the need for social, cultural, and political change, but expressed through humor, through cosplay, through showing up and breaking the spell of capitalist reality. We were trying to do that in, in general, but uh, had a few successful moments. We had the Congress of Causation in the Brett Schneider Funeral Home for a few months in really the fall semester of 2016, of that election year. So it coincided with our seasonal rights only a couple of times. We did Halloween of 1996 in the funeral home. I had me showing up a good 20, 30 minutes before the starting time of the event, sitting in the front pew and crying my eyes out. Yeah. <laughs> We yeah. were finally, after weeks of having congresses of causation and, you know, zany open mic spiritual variety show in the funeral home, we were finally having a funeral. Having a funeral. Staging yeah. a funeral. Uh, and then, and so you gave the eulogy, you know, uh, one of your more memorable performances. Uh, and in keeping with the greater meaning of the season, the, the late harvest that Samhain season represents. The funeral was for parts, elements of ourselves, to which it was time to say goodbye. We had that, that uh, coffin <laughs> at, right under the, uh, the lectern for the, the funeral yes, uh, person who would give the address. We didn't let anybody in the audience see what was in the coffin. We had it, uh, it was a closed coffin during the actual ceremony we had you staged there in the front oh, i think those are much crying your eyes you? out so everybody comes in and it's like and you know we had uh, us dressed somberly ushering them into their seats and it was all very uh, atypical of the usual congress of causation let me tell you and everybody was kind of like uh, uh, all kind of, you know, rung up and, and wondering what was going to be happening. And it was just this coffin up there. And it wasn't really a real coffin. It was just this cardboard thing. But yeah, we but I, I was really acting. crying. You were really crying. And we were really acting like it was a real funeral. And we were in a funeral home. And it was just very uh, tense there. And yeah, then I, the yeah. eulogy. And then we open the coffin and let everybody come up and give their respects. And what was in the coffin was a, a, a dummy, just newspapers in this set of clothes. It looked convincingly like a human form. Uh -huh. And in the place of a head, there was the mirror. And, okay. and uh, you were supposed to go up, look into the mirror and see that you were letting go of a part of yourself. Uh. The only part of that I remember really clearly was going up to, in the middle and clutching my chest and sobbing and saying, he was so handsome. Yeah. And then rushing back to my seat. And then all the people who had already been up to the coffin burst into laughter. And the people who were still waiting in their seats to go up to the coffin were more confused than ever. That really was one of our most successful. Well, uh, I'll divulge the thing that I ended up realizing that I was crying about 
the thing I was saying goodbye to at that time was my singleness. (laughs) Something to weep over, certainly, even in the best of times. (laughs) And had I only known. (laughs) (laughs) We did some really, really good street theater. And we did some really great neighborhood theater. Maybe you could count it as street theater. I remember in the park when we were doing the rituals and people would send their kids over to hang out with us and wave the incense and it chant all consisted and all of the that. rest. Right, which, was... which why it had to have an element of reverence. It couldn't all be silly. Right. You know, right. that that is the magic. That's the, the, the magic consists of, you know, surfing that, that balance, that line. Yeah. That was that very well put. I'm going to give that one a great deal more thought for our endeavor here. That's the yin-yang balance that draws me to thinking that of the organized religious traditions, the Taoist one is the, the one that's easiest to swallow, easiest to take, and seems to make the most, the most empirical sense. As for Jewish, mm-hmm. you know, you mm-hmm. were hinting at asking, uh, and I'll just say simply that I include it because I, uh, I want to honor and I don't want to dishonor the, the heritage that's ancestral sure. and uh, that's ethnic. But I think of my Jewishness as principally an ethnicity and perhaps equally a style of humor and of culture more than of religion. But it has that flavor, so it, it works well, you know, in that, in, in that balance. My, my ethnicity is Jewish, my philosophy is Taoist, my practice to the extent I have one has been pagan. pagan. It, felt, it felt very much like I had one during those years. I think the reason I continue to associate myself a Taoist, not so much because I groove to the, uh, the truths and the manifestations and the mysteries in Lao Tzu, but because I really gravitate to Zhuang Tzu's brilliance in getting across spiritual content through humorous vignettes, which are really quite funny. What is it that you would like to accomplish with what we're doing now? What, what would be your idea as to a worthy goal? I, I adore and think there are great possibilities in this idea of developing uh, media content, sound bites, and humorous video imagery that brings an underlying message that we put under the branch of humanism. What's that? And describe as an attack. What's that? I think it really contains all of the threads that we brought up in this conversation hmm. from that work. The use of humor, the call to a higher self-criticism, mental functionism, cultural criticism, and self-actualization. That's something that I'm uh, still highly focused in on uh, with our sub-group, the Ethics Lab, which is a section of When Humanists Attack that's more focused in on what I like to call the mental tinkering part of the game. As you articulated in another way where we're looking at personal growth and we're looking at social progress. I don't want us 
to overlook either one of those things in what we're promulgating or oh, yeah you know pers personal growth amid apocalypse <laughs> yeah. i am thrilled i should say that uh you and chris and robin have uh reunited for this project and uh very excited to see what uh what we're gonna make of it i'm really excited that the old team is back together again too we did get we did get an awful lot accomplished back in the 90s before uh, we called it a day and as people with a track record who've hopefully learned a thing or two in the intervening years i'm really hoping we can get a lot more done now uh, entering into the culture wars making our voice a part of the current conversation and advocating for humanism, which to us includes scientific literacy, communication skills, critical thinking, uh, and things of that nature, skills that basically our entire species needs to master in order to move from a series of competing tribes to a global civilization. And that's a quite a bit for us to be taking on. I realize right, that. especially at a time when uh, you know the human species is in danger of a quick demise. Oh, quick! What an optimist you still are, Roger. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad we can still it, it say me, if that. I, if I can just begin by uh, by turning the tables quickly, you know, I I wonder the the question that's forming in my own mind is is whether you share my sense that whatever we're going to make of humanism now consists not only of the, the really important but very cerebral and very global set of qualities you mentioned, but also has, you know, underneath it as perhaps it's yin, a much more local and pragmatic manifestation. Absolutely. Uh, which, very well said, Roger, that's part of what I tend to leave out of my discussion. I'm involved in a great deal of volunteer work, for example, mm -hmm. as a uh, board member of the Brooklyn Society of Ethical Culture, which is a humanist organization here in Brooklyn. We do a lot of educational programs. We do services for other groups in the area, mostly by providing, well, this was of course pre-pandemic, but we were providing a lot of organizations with low or no cost places to meet, given the cost of, of meeting space in New York City. That was yeah, actually, that was actually yeah. a lot more of a service than I was thinking at the time. Oh, yeah. We, Physical, logistical infrastructure for community organizations. Right. Oh. You know, I mean, you, you said at the top, we accomplished a lot. And, you know, I tend not to think of it that way, which may just be my natural uh, modesty. I think in terms of uh, community building functions, which were always essential, are uh, uh, what I'm hearing you describe the Ethical Culture Society as doing, providing. If the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is providing us a little window onto ways that 
you know, civilization is uh, is disintegrating or decaying. One thing it's doing, I think, is taking us collectively down the hierarchy of needs. You have to think about root survival and the the skill sets that that actually help contribute on a local level. Uh, who is essential and who is not? For example, the delivery people who are paid pittance being essential to get us our food Me. here was, in New I, York I, City, I, I, you I working just, at the food co-op. I was going to say it, you know, I would do, doing this writing, editing work for a decade. My income started diminishing dangerously in 2019. And I thought to look for a part-time job. Fortunately, it was easy for me to find one at the, at the food co-op because I had been working there two hours a week for the whole decade through their super worker program in exchange just for a discount on, pro, on, on groceries. They swiftly hired me and I started doing three eight-hour shifts a week. Then a few months into that, all of a sudden, you know, the governor of the state <laughs> was saying, I counted among those doing essential work and you know we can debate and reflect on the you know the meaning and the shades of meaning in the term on one level it was definitely kind of bracing and sort of welcome for me to think all right finally for a decade i've been playing around with words before that i tried a teaching career before that worked in nonprofit sector i worked at the un i did gadfly political organizing finally i'm doing something essential <laughs> is my point <laughs> right? but but i do appreciate it. it you know we are getting lessons and as as you know one of my favorite lines from citizen kane is the boss says you're going to need more than one lesson and you're going to get more than one lesson and we're all going to get more than one lesson of what it takes what it will take for us to survive this century so that's what you've been up to since 1998, which is when we called it a year or a day for a Temple of the Apotheosis. You were very yeah. serious in your worship of Bayo Zedo. Yes, the, the great god of the cosmic joke, great goddess of the cosmic joke. Uh, and yeah. actually, uh, I, am, I would like to uh, clarify that I am still a practitioner of and uh, communicant at the mysteries of Beozado. I never stopped doing that. And I dare say uh, you probably never did either, although uh, we haven't well, discussed it until now. We're used to thinking that this thinking work, this cerebral work, it reminds me of Jewish men and their yeshiva uh, and how much they, they value the, the, you know, the exalted work of engaging with the divine. The flaw in, in that setup is that hmm. you know, the, 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 the women's work, the pragmatic work of, of you know, feeding the humans, raising the young humans, and keeping the, the community together and functioning and alive has to be denigrated, considered less important uh, because it's lower down on the, uh, the hierarchy of needs or lower on the, the Kabbalistic one. Uh, it's, it's lower chakra work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did not succumb so much, I think, to, to that particular flaw. This was, this was community building, what we were doing. It had both the upper and the lower, so to speak, kinds of function. I just had an idea for another uh, person I could conceivably interview for this program, an old friend of mine who is now 
a philosopher and comedy writer. His philosophical book is entitled, Does Santa Exist? He essentially leans on humor as either the antidote to or corollary of the Western philosophical tradition. <laughs> it, I mean, certainly by, by this point in this century, uh, it's quite clear that from a uh, religious standpoint, the, uh, the unchurched, the un, the, you know, the I'm not any religion, uh, or not any, I'm the none of the above, the nuns, whatever you want to call yeah. it, have achieved a plurality in U.S. society, as far as I can tell. There's a lot of us, so that's a large constituency. That's only one way of framing the question. You can stage it another way to draw or attract or uh, provide content, provide roadmaps, uh, and, and provide a way for those people to take themselves just seriously enough. One of the root concepts for my Jewish Taoist paganism would be the, the one is part of the many, which is the one. This is, you know, essentially a spiritual concept, one that is spoken for in the Eastern and much better than or as opposed to the Western religions, but really isn't so much a, re a religious concept as a philosophical one. So we can all embrace it. That actually might be one of our um, ongoing difficulties or ongoing projects as I see it now for when humanist attack is fostering the conversation where all of us nuns or none of the aboves or no affiliation religiously or whatever you want to call us, how do we get us organized so that we're not at the mercy of people who, honest to goodness, I see as willing to impose their delusions and their lack of critical thinking on the rest of us by law. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I would use uh, organized as a word to, to, to give people in that large basket to the types of conversations you're talking about on the, the, the great issues, not of just of our time, but of all time, because one thing you can say in favor of religions is that they're not shy about weighing in on those questions and giving us all sorts of dogma and you know, ways of thinking. It's not so much organizing as giving people a way in and a sense that they can belly up to the bar of these great questions of life, the way religions make people think they, they can dare address those questions. The religions usually provide religious answers and dogma to these questions with which we can contend. But, uh, but my point is, they, they engage with the questions, and I wonder whether many of the none of the aboves tend to just live lives that duck ultimate questions. But you can't duck them ultimately because we live and we die, and so death is a matter of import, and there are others. So there is some internal consistency to a point of view that doesn't often get named and that you are bravely calling humanism. Well, I would only take issue with the idea that all we need to do or should be doing or hope to do is to get people involved in a conversation. I really do think that we need to be organized because the people 
who are quite happy to drive our entire species, if not our whole ecosystem, right over a cliff into some kind of very costly oblivion, are organized. Oh, absolutely. So I don't see but, but, that uh, we've I mean, got the. I don't see that we've got the option, if we want to survive, sure. of being unorganized. Take the, the I, question is: What is the basis for the organizing? I think we're coming from a position where we were trying to get a bunch of nuns organized enough to get some stuff accomplished. I don't think that the none of the above are, are, are you know, organizable on, uh, on a spiritual or religious plane. The, the organizing that we need that you're speaking of it, uh, is and probably must inevitably be plainly political. In the USA, we have our whole church and state debate. We have a longstanding ambivalence and ambiguity about the relationship between religious and political questions and, mm -hmm. and between religious and political organizing. But I agree with you that time uh, is running out or has virtually run out. There really is this sense, I certainly have a sense, that the word apocalyptic is not at all misplaced that it's we're really you know ha ha, ha the apocalypse Woo, hoo, hoo, hoo. but yeah, and, we ha and we have great you know uh, news media to bring in you know the stories and the footage uh, and make it worse and uh, you know whatever they had 10 plagues in the uh in the jewish passover how uh, how how many have we got I, I, <laughs> reverend I, billy i'm sure does this kind of shtick maybe where we are winding down uh, I get that sense. In, civilization is, you mean? Well, yes, our civilization. Well, our civilization is getting ready to probably to crash down. I mean, I, I was hoping for a much more uh, peaceful transition, but with all of this science denial that's going on, all this reality denial, all of this dogmatic denial. thinking and let me let me just be clear i see the dogmatic thinking on both the left and the right mm -hmm. you know all of the and and all of these people good people okay good people who are terrified because of all this change happening at an un, unthinkable rate in unthinkable ways change and what they're doing is what, what you might want to conserve they're making up what currently exists well, I don't, yep, that's a good point, but we're, I don't know, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff that I'd really like to conserve. You know, yeah. think of New York City. New York City isn't going to do me much goddamn good under 52 feet of water or whatever yeah, we, it is it winds lost, up being uh, under. We lost those big two towers, but, you know, I remember, I remember, you know, being up on the roof uh, of our Park Slope apartments, you know, looking out at those two towers and the rest of the skyline uh, before they fell. Back yeah. during yeah. our days in the mid '90s, thinking yeah. this this shit is not always going to be here. This is a weird landscape as it currently exists. I'd like to keep the Brooklyn Bridge. I would like us to to still be um, still be aware that there were cool recordings made in the 1920s and 30s, yeah. 200 years from now. Yeah, absolutely. I would like as much of uh, as possible to be conserved and brought forward, and I'd like a minimal loss of life. This is uh, my yeah, problem. I've given that one up. 
<laughs> I, I I still have I still haven't given that one up. I mean, our population got way too high. It's gonna uh, there's gonna be maximal loss of life. But uh, but I think that uh, one of the threads to which I cling is that uh, it's the indigenous societies of the world that uh, uh, stand the greatest chance of survival because they have mm. always been oriented towards survival uh, and rarely you know, bought into the illusion that, that anything else is really possible in life from generation to generation. So they have the right orientation. I mean, that is one of the, the good things about getting older is that you've got this perspective, particularly on yourself, particularly if you've actually been paying attention to yourself, which well, is, we're just older, you know, uh, no, because, you know, my friend, uh, I know people who are just older and they've been thinking the same thoughts since they've been teenagers and pretty much the only goddamn thing they've picked up is a tendency to rot and that yeah, really thinking of these same questions that really does Many make decades you know, now well i don't know but uh they sure are good questions or you've not been thinking of them because somebody gave you your answer when mm. you were 12 and you've stuck with it all this time and you've basically just got that. The stakes are higher culturally. The stakes are far higher yeah. environmentally. There's no yeah. uh, denying that. Yeah. Uh, anybody who attempts to deny that, what they're really denying is responsibility. <sighs> yes. For it. Yes. Uh, that, that's what know, I say. Responsibility for having caused the problem. Responsibility for contending with our situation. That is... Um, uh, sobering, you know. There really is this sense. I certainly have a sense that the word apocalyptic is not at all misplaced. That it's we're really, you know, ha ha ha, the apocalypse. Woo -hoo -hoo -hoo. But yeah, and we ha and we have great, you know, uh, news media to bring in, you know, the stories and the footage uh, and um, make it worse and uh, you know whatever they had 10 plagues in the uh in the jewish passover how 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 many have we got I, I, <laughs> reverend I, billy i'm sure does this kind of shtick maybe where we are winding down uh i get that sense in, civilization is you mean well yes our civilization well our civilization is getting ready to probably to crash down i mean i i was hoping for a much more a peaceful transition, but with all of this science denial that's going on, all this reality denial, all of this uh, dogmatic denial. thinking. And let me, let me just be clear. I see the dogmatic thinking on both the left and the right. Mm -hmm. You know, all of the, and, and all of these people, good people, okay, good people who are terrified because of all this change happening at an un unthinkable rate in unthinkable ways Change and what they're doing is what, what you might want to conserve they're making what up what currently exists well i don't yep that's a good point but where i don't know i mean there's a lot of good stuff that i'd really like to conserve you know yeah. think of new york city new york city isn't going to do me much goddamn good under 52 feet of water or whatever yeah, we, it is it winds up being the, under we lost those big two towers but you know i remember I remember, you know, being up on the roof uh, of our Park Slope apartments, you know, looking out at those two towers and the rest of the skyline uh, before they fell back yeah. during yeah. our days in the mid 90s. 
thinking yeah. this this shit is not always going to be here this is a weird landscape as it currently exists i'd like to keep the brooklyn bridge i would like us to to still be um still be aware that there were cool recordings made in the 1920s and 30s yeah. 200 years from now yeah absolutely i would like as much of uh, as possible to be conserved and brought forward and i'd like a minimal loss of life this is uh, my yeah, problem that one up <laughs> i, I I still have. I still haven't given that one up. I mean, our population got way too high. It's gonna. Uh, there's gonna be maximal loss of life. But uh, but I think that uh, one of the threads to which I cling is that uh, it's the indigenous societies of the world that uh, uh, stand the greatest chance of survival because they have mm. always been oriented towards survival uh, and rarely you know, bought into the illusion that, that anything else is really possible in life from generation to generation. So they have the right orientation. I buy into the illusion that there's more than survival is possible because I'm going to cling to the myth of progress. The year before I met all of you, hmm. I had been on this walk across America, ending in the, the Western Shoshone land at the nuclear test site in Nevada on Columbus Day of 1992, the quincentennial year. So I have this orientation yeah, okay. from, the, from that experience and the prayer circles and, and actually meeting Native American folks from, and, and being on lands where they were uh, still practicing. One thing I learned that year was the concept of progressive-ism uh, among Native Americans is generally put in the same basket as all of the rest of the failed Western isms. Much of the, the political debate about ways forward for Native American groups consists of debates between progressive ideas about how the societies, nations should develop, and traditionalist views that may map onto a more conservative style of thinking but in the Native American context, relate to a tradition that goes back to the you know beginning of humans, the one that's survival-oriented. The folks I met tended to think that, uh, at the very least, the, the, those two camps needed to listen to each other very respectfully, and at the most, it was the traditionalists who had the right ideas. So um, I just I just placed that before you before you uh, say more about the myth of progress, which I hope you will. I I've got plenty of people who dismiss uh, progress and progressivism, be it a myth or a reality. So I would have to say that I respectfully disagree with the good people of the the Western Shoshone. I could not disagree more. That's... What what constitutes progress, and as a sub-question, who defines it, are live questions in any cultural debate. Progress constitutes the cultural meme-plexes that allow you to do more from one time period to another, the extension of capacities. So that's one kind of progress. Another kind of that's progress... That's how Marshall McLuhan saw media, as I'm sure you're aware. I'm... No, but that's fine. You know, Mar Marshall and I are, uh, uh, I read some of his stuff way, way back and good, great. Uh, 
And the other kind of progress that I recognize is the kind of progress that makes more of the assets or the resources that allow more people to move up Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, in any right. given it's, society. It's, that's it's a, that's not, another it's kind not of a material or materialist kind of more. It's not accumulation. If nobody has any bloody damned food to eat, then they're not going to be worried about what comes next. So in part, of course, what I'm talking about are, are uh, material possessions. Um, I like things like eyeglasses so that I can see better. I like this, this technology that we've got. Uh, what you don't want to do is lose sight of the whole picture. Uh, of the whole, pro, you know, the whole progression up the man mountain, Maslow's mountain, as I've heard it called, you know, from, you just don't want to get caught in the idea that, you know, the number of zeros on my bank account is the be all and end all. If you have, you've lost right. sight or, or, of something. That's progress to some people. That's all they understand is the number of zeros in their bank account. And I don't know what to say to that person, except that I want a social contract that allows for that and more than that. Maybe they don't really get the hierarchy of needs uh, or understand it or subscribe to it as a, gov as a governing yeah, meme. They might you know, not. It sounds like a very misplaced interpretation of them. I, I, I would humbly think that they are just misinterpreting. I consider gay marriage over non-gay marriage. That's progress, as far as I'm concerned. Now, you talk to a fundamentalist Christian, they would say, well, that's not progress. Well, we're not always going to get consensus over what progress is. I consider the, empower the empowerment of women to be progress. Progress of a kind that, incidentally, will solve the population problem. So... Mm. Different right. kinds well, of well, progress. Are, I guess these are social questions that have often been debated in terms of the nation and its national aspirations. Dr. Mm. King's dream, the notion of a, a more perfect union implies a great faith in a certain kind of progress that sounds very much like what you're defending. Perhaps it is only now, only in 2020, and this is, I think, underlying the, the message of the George Floyd protests, only now do we get to speak forthrightly about what was buried, what, you know, what was suffering, what was left out of all of these articulations of the, of the American National Project. You know, the, the genocide and the slavery, just impossible, really, for a, a society to deal with that straightforwardly while aiming for the moon and for the, the very complex kinds of social progress that, uh, that we've tended either to, to uh, believe in or to dream of. You can't make the kind of progress that I would like to see happen unless 
you as your whole society are willing to bite the bullet or the leather strap in your mouth and submit to the necessary procedures that allow you, you know, the operation, the surgery, the whatever you want to call it, the painful whatever, what's this that you need to go through in order to, to, to make these changes, to face the stuff. One of the upcoming shows that we're uh, planning to do is entitled, Why Did It Take So Long for Black Lives to Matter? And why sure. do we have so many people who are still unwilling to, to face this issue, this situation, A this second shortcoming? second valid question. What, you know, what, 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 you know where, what the hell? Why did certain conservatives that I know go from right after the George Floyd tape was released to saying, yeah, that was really what those cops did was really, uh, you know, that, that, that's just not right to, yeah, well, you know, that George Floyd, he was, you know, he did this and uh, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I'm thinking these people are, are, you're defending this? You're defending this? This man was tortured to death for nine minutes by a police officer while these other police officers stood around and watched while they got their jollies watching a fellow human being be tortured to death. This is monstrous, okay? This isn't just a few bad apples. This is, this is a barrel full of rot. And there are people who just simply refuse to acknowledge this. They just refuse to acknowledge this. And I, but then again, you deal with individual human beings. And we refuse to acknowledge our glaring shortcomings and our insanities and our, you know, that the stuff that has been wrong with us from the start that we, that maybe you can't even fix. But if you can't fix something for the love of blah, at least acknowledge it so you can compensate for it somehow. It, do it something a, intelligent to compensate for it's it. It's a necessary early step. Uh, but, you know, we've had great cognitive dissonance about these questions. Those who haven't been on the, the receiving end of the punishment. The only reason I know anything about it is I was a queer kid growing up in fear of my life among the Catholics. And that's how I understood richly, deeply, viscerally, yeah. experientially, existentially, hormonally, intellectually, and emotionally that this country has always been a police state for some of its citizens yeah. and the police and the other authorities could do whatever they wanted to you right. and be confident that's, that's of getting away about with it, whatever they fucking felt like. And the only reason I have any knowledge of that is because I grew up uh, as the, the designated monster among the Catholics. And the, the reason I'm alive today is because I had protective coloration. 
So I guess what, what, you know, what, what is that bringing me to? What that brings me to is I can't even imagine the courage it must take to be a black person walking around in this culture with all of these lunatic crazies and all of these good cops walking around who feel entitled to brutalize and yeah, occasionally torture somebody to death if they're feeling cranky that day in front of witnesses with the full knowledge that they can get away with this and would be still getting away with this if we didn't have all these cameras in our phones. That's the, the thing that amazes me. It would still be going on and all these people would be in complete and utter denial of the situation if not for these cameras in their phones. And the, how many of the police were inciting riots and worse during these demonstrations by routinely attacking peaceful demonstrators, people who were standing around doing nothing other than exercising their first amendment rights and the cops would just it would just attack them i, I read an essay that um that started by saying we're, what we're facing is a, a super abundance of the unresolved past it's oh. all sort of vomiting itself up in front of us you know uh cannot be dismissed it's gonna have to be dealt with we have a pretty urgent task for the next, what, 100 days. And not so much two parties, but four political factions, or a fifth, I wrote about this recently. We know mm. about the divide in the Democratic Party is essentially the, uh, the one that's been true uh, ever since you know, Henry Wallace in 1948, which is essentially the voters versus donors problem the Democrats have always had and still have. Oh, we now have factionalism, although it's much harder to see on the other side between the red and orange teams. Both of those factions consist of people of conservative philosophies, so they orient much more towards uh, uniformity, hierarchy. Mm. They don't want to display that there's growing daylight between them. A friend of mine said, well, just think about the, the question of mask wearing those who are oriented towards that side who are willing to put the thing on their face you know are essentially defying the orange order by doing so and it's a divide that is it seems inevitable that it will grow in uh, both size and in importance for us all as time goes on we have to draw people from all of the factions to take a stand against uh, this road to authoritarianism within 100 days, and then we'll deal with the next set of problems. And we'll do so in a better position because it will have started us back into a notion of having something in common besides armed camps. I can't find a single thing to disagree with there. So I would say we should... I would actually like to take this opportunity to discharge a 20 plus year old debt to you that you have not known about all this time. Uh, and this is concerning a conversation that you, me and Chris West, uh, one of the other ringleaders. This was a conversation that we were having uh, that was 
based on the interactions between us and a group of friends who were all involved together in the precursor to a temple of the apotheosis called the focus circle which an, an earlier vincent pilot an earlier vincent pilot there's a a, long, <laughs> a a string of them all the way back to uh well anyway the wright brothers needed many of them too the uh, uh, the, the 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 one with the three wings that crumples into the ground there's a lot of them out yep. there like yep. that uh, thank goodness no 10,000 failed filaments no footage uh, exists <clears throat> at any rate um you, Chris, and I, you, you actually convened this meeting and you sat Chris and I down to give us a, let's call it a, a Roger Kimmel Smith talking with rather than talking to about the concerns of these friends of ours who were highly concerned about the capacity that I had to, and I quote, see through people and know about their shit, which Chris also had in a somewhat lesser degree, presumably because of some sort of sinister alliance, apprenticeship that he had with me where he was learning these dark, nameless skills and you you were during those years you know bandying about words like magic and spelling them with a k i was really hoping that that one would never come up again but <laughs> there we have it uh uh, uh, uh I, i'm sorry uh, 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 hello I, I can't hear anything you're saying um so the uh uh, uh talking with that you gave us about these skills that we had and the reactions that people were having to them uh, was your usual very thoughtful uh, and insightful and um, even ye gods and little fishes, uh, 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 well-spoken again or articulate talking with. And out of that conversation, I immediately had a new faith in and confidence in my instincts to exercise this skill, which as the years went by, expanded throughout my personality and enabled me to achieve a whole bunch of things that it would have taken a great deal longer for me to achieve. Now, I'm not saying that I wouldn't have done this on my own recognizance, but because of this conversation, I was able to get the ball rolling uh, with your help on this probably a good decade or more earlier than otherwise. Now, I have been thinking about this through all of these intervening years and pondering how to best thank you for doing such an, an immeasurably good deed, uh, uh, the, the magnitude of which you really just don't run into uh, that often in your life. Archimedes' lever, you know, somebody just kind of puts their fingertip 
on something and it changes the whole situation. Screw now, whether Archimedes or not he's lever, we're talking about Zuzu's pedals. Woohoo! Yeah, yeah. Whether or not you meant to do it, of course, is immaterial. I did get that measure of benefit from the thing. Now, you're welcome. As Chris and Robin will tell you, I had found this uh, a plaster statue uh, uh, in the street near my house and was repairing it uh, and painting it with gold. And I was getting ready to <laughs> inscribe a thank you along the base. And I had this thing to put in the hand. It was a statue of a man to put in the hand. And I had this whole plan, you know, this thank you, this award, this thank you award. And then of course, I got all of the constituent parts ready for this, knocked the statue over and smashed it into a million pieces. And then uh, uh, was uh, sort of left at my wits end. I've been searching online for another replacement statue since I uh, haven't found anything uh, proper and I just kind of decided to take the easy way out and uh, thank you and on thank air and you online. And humanists for attack. This, <laughs> for this I guess it's, I guess it's just as well. Uh, I, I, uh, whew, uh, uh, they won't be able to, to, to smash this one into a million pieces before I finish gilding it um, with my very own mixture of... Uh, uh, a bright and brilliant gold paint that, that, that I mix myself. Um, so anyway, there, thank you very much, Roger. Uh, 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 a real You're welcome. example Next, of the kind of thing that we hope to do for each other uh, and would like to see more people doing uh, in the world out there as humanists and just maybe as just good old human beings. It, it is nice to hear that, uh, you know, I could have had uh, the, the idea for an intervention uh, and that it would have done good. <laughs> really I, I very rarely got that sense of satisfaction from any interven any interventions I initiated during my during my parenting. Uh, well, you know, uh, uh, I might be a little bit more malleable than a four year old. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, anyway, I would yes. like to thank all of you for giving us your valuable time and watching another episode of When Humanists Attack. <laughs>